Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Er Garcia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, we examined Bottomley's analysis of the economic factors underlying work-related harm and how society's mechanisms for dealing with the death and injury that occurs within the workplace marginalises and re-traumatises those who have been harmed by or who are grieving as a result of work-related injury and death. In this episode, we explore Bottomley's contention that the silencing of the justice claims of workers is indicative of a culture in which the mythology of progress promotes a process of collective forgetting, one in which the focus is always on the promised rewards of tomorrow rather than the reality of harm and suffering in history and in the present. Bottomley links this process of forgetting to the project of colonialism and the denial of the justice claims of Indigenous Australians that marked the non-Indigenous settlement of this nation. Bottomley places both the silencing of the justice claims of workers and the forgetting of injustice toward Indigenous peoples within the context of the post-Enlightenment worldview of rationalism and the idea of human progress based on the taming of the natural environment and the success of so-called advanced peoples over allegedly less advanced cultures. So, without any further ado, let us now begin Ergasia episode 25, Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, part 7, Prophetic Resistance to the Forgetting of Injustice. Bottomley begins by posing the question, how can the church deepen its commitment to the urgent task of pastoral care for those harmed by modernity's construction of work and economy, given that both the nation and the church are captive to modernity's idolatrous belief in the saving power of hard work? Indeed, for Bottomley, the church's inability to respond to the violence and injustice done to working people makes it seem complicit in the silence surrounding this idolatry. The beginning of an answer to this question 
starts with recognizing that this phenomenon is nothing new, that in fact the church's dislocation from the task of prophetic pastoral care for suffering workers is rooted in the colonial act of invading Indigenous Australia. Only by examining the historical realities of invasion and colonization can we come to an understanding of the beliefs and structures that sustain the present social order. Bottomley argues that at the root of colonialism lies a worldview that includes a belief in human progress that enables the forgetting of injustice. This notion of progress was present in the colonist belief that no injustice was being done to Indigenous peoples and their culture and society precisely because the success of the colonists' economic expansion was nothing less than a playing out of the natural order of things. In other words, modernity's belief in progress involves a social Darwinist view in which advanced peoples necessarily and inevitably, and for the better of all, displace and replace less advanced peoples. Indeed, it was a view that laid the blame for the results of colonialism at the feet of its victims, on the grounds that they were in the way of progress. Colonial society was thus enabled to forget the injustice done to Indigenous peoples by regarding it as not really injustice, on the basis that the Indigenous peoples of Australia were actually at fault for not being sufficiently advanced to successfully resist invasion and colonisation. Bottomley argues that this worldview and its beliefs about progress were fuelled by three key developments. The first was the scientific revolution, which carried the promise that, through sheer dint of will and the power of unaided reason, human beings could learn all the secrets of nature and thus leave behind religion and other superstitions. The second was the emergence of the scientific method, which privileged knowledge over feelings and which located truth in the rational public world of science, politics and economics, while relegating beliefs and emotions, such as grief, to the private realm of home and family. The third was the notion, derived from the scientific method, which asserted that human reason could better explain the reality of human affairs, rather than any belief in God's provenance in or governance of human history. These three developments resulted in the scope of any explanation for human history and behaviour being reduced to a narrow horizon of facts, one in which the harm done to workers is viewed as an inexplicable accident that was probably of the workers' own making just as indigenous peoples themselves were to blame for being inferior and thus an impediment to progress that would inevitably be removed. These three interrelated developments embodied a worldview about what it means to be human. Within this worldview, 
lies a promise that the fullness of human life can only be achieved by hard work founded in a reason that drives scientific advance and technological innovation. However, viewed from the standpoint of the prophetic imagination, injustice is a social sin arising from the justification by the powerful and the wealthy of their self-interested acts committed at the expense of the poor and the powerless. Prophetic critique thus carries a theological judgment that views work-related harm and death as a marker of the idolatry and falseness of this worldview and its basis in an evil whose intention is to shield the perpetrators of injustice from any accountability for their self-interested actions. This intent is evident in the blindness of colonial society to the complex network of relationships between peoples and between humankind and the environment, which indigenous peoples traced back to the ancestral spirit beings of their dreaming. The colonists' belief in the virtue of hard work, the power of reason, and the advances of science and technology trampled on indigenous spirituality, uprooting Aboriginal Australians from their connection to the land and to their dreaming. This violence was the product of a cultural consensus on the virtues of economic growth. The benefits accrued by the winners of this process were said to wipe away the cost in pain and injustice for the losers. Indeed, the legal fiction of terra nullius was the self-legitimizing basis upon which colonialism founded the modern world, enabling the grief and loss of indigenous peoples to be buried, while colonial culture was able to forget the harm for which it was responsible. For bottomly, the forgetting of colonial society is the same forgetting that up until the mid-1980s enabled the beneficiaries of the economic status quo to blame the so-called careless worker for work-related deaths and injuries. And among Australian churches, Bottomley argues that it is the church in which he has spent the bulk of his life as a minister, the Uniting Church in Australia, which is most deeply in the grip of modernity's culture of forgetting injustice. Indeed, Bottomley asserts that the Uniting Church is captive to a culture in which it maintains a belief in its own progress that causes it to distance itself from the cries of pain and distress that, if they were to be recognised by the Church, might jeopardise that belief. This culture has its origins in the formation of the Uniting Church in 1977 from a union of the Presbyterian, Methodist and Congregationalist churches. The First Assembly of the Uniting Church issued a Statement to the Nation in which it declared that a new church had been born because the people of three other Christian traditions had decided to unite. Bottomley argues that this was the Uniting Church's first act of forgetting, a hubristic proclamation 
that overlooked the bitter divisions and hurt that accompanied a process by which two of the UCA's founding denominations came to an end, while the third was split in two. In other words, this proclamation chose to focus on the birth of a new denomination as though it had not occurred in the shadow of bitterness and grief at the death or sundering of other denominations. For bottomly, the statement to the nation involved a deliberate choice by the First Assembly to minimise the experience of loss and death in favour of a view that the fact of union itself was a sign of reconciliation. Bottomley contends that in this act of forgetting, the First Assembly of the Uniting Church inaugurated the UCA into living out the colonialist myth of progress in which reconciliation occurs when the losers in a power contest accept political reality. From this it follows that a church so deeply in denial cannot possibly be equipped to respond meaningfully to the human issue of an unreconciled nation and the personal, social and environmental wounds inflicted by the ideology of economic growth. The new life that was promised through the union that created the UCA has instead been experienced as organisational restructuring, reflective of an institutional church that is captive to the idolatry of hard work and a belief that its salvation lies in its own hands through its own acts of power. By forgetting its own pain, the church demonstrates its own lack of belief in God's presence in the reality of human suffering and injustice. For bottomly, the upshot of all this is an inability on the part of the church to stand in solidarity with those burdened by the trauma and grief of an economic reality founded in injustice. In the same way that those who inherit the worldview of colonialism are unable to listen to the grief of indigenous peoples, so those who are captive to modernity's construction of economic normality and personal salvation are unable to listen to the grief of those suffering under the burden of the idolatry of hard work. And yet it is in both cries of anguish that we might be able to discern the cry of Christ crucified and thereby know the truth to which we are called to bear witness. Bottomley sees the beginning of this witness in the Uniting Church's foundational document, its basis of union, which affirms the scriptural witness that God in Christ reconciles the world to God. Thus God's work of reconciliation begins in the depths of the world's suffering, moving the perpetrators of injustice to understand the pain of their victims in a way that elicits genuine repentance. This movement likewise occurs when non-Indigenous peoples come to the understanding that their own experience of suffering through work-related harm is linked to the idolatrous belief in progress that has caused so much harm and suffering to Indigenous communities. Thus the promise that Christ transforms the world 
by entering into human sin and suffering is also the promise that Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples may enter together into a newly incorporated creation made possible by Christ's solidarity with the hurt and pain of all people. The fragmented experience of trauma, grief and injustice experienced by different peoples is unified in the solidarity of Christ's suffering on the cross, precisely because unless all are healed and reconciled through the relationship of justice, then none will be. Bottomley argues that the upshot of all this is that the Australian Church has a new opportunity to learn from Indigenous Australians what it means to integrate pastoral care for the whole of life. The yearning of the Church for a spirituality that holds all time in a community embrace is a prophetic dreaming that mirrors the dreaming of Indigenous Australians that holds the whole of life in its embrace. This shared longing dreaming is the foundation for a model of pastoral companioning that resists the idolatry of hard work and the principalities and powers that seek to control our lives. For Bottomley and his colleagues, the truth of God's solidarity with human suffering through Christ's death and resurrection revealed the full dimensions of what it meant to be human and how they could enter with prophetic hope into the reality of the trauma and grief caused by injustice. This in turn led them to inaugurate an annual memorial service for workers as well as an ecumenical May Day service. As a result, they discovered that there was very little by way of coordinated support for bereaved families or traumatised workers, whether from unions, business, or from within OHS legislation and policy. The impetus created by these discoveries led Bottomley and his colleagues to the rich tradition of Catholic social justice teaching on the dignity of the human person, the rights of workers, and the Church's own tradition of the condemnation of exploitative and harmful forms of work organisation. This in turn enabled them, through the May Day service, to engage with the labour movement's struggle for justice from within their own faith tradition. This combination of worship, theological reflection and engagement with particular justice issues was key to forming their understanding of their call to prophetic ministry. This understanding located worship as the ground from which Bottomley and his colleagues could engage other parts of the church as they bore witness to church agencies about the importance of relationship with Christ to the identity and purpose of the church's missional activity. Through worship, prophetic witness could be borne to both church and society that in work-related harm and death we encounter all the evil power of idolatry's opposition to God's life-giving purpose. It was thus a short step from this understanding of worship to the creation of a congregation directly linked to the agency for which Bottomley and his colleagues worked, 
underlining the importance of worship to the prophetic mission of healing, reconciliation and justice. Through these developments, Bottomley and his colleagues sought to strengthen resistance to the idolatry of hard work and its distortion of what it means to be human. This in turn enabled the development of ritual forms and pastoral practices that were sensitive to the beliefs and longings of the people they encountered through their support programs, many of whom had little or only negative experience of Christian liturgy and ritual. This grounding of prophetic ministry and worship was not for the purpose of meeting the needs of the bereaved consumers of grief services, but for remembering that all who seek assistance are children of God, and that through this relationship a shared yearning for a new creation was expressed. It is only through this inclusive love, embodied in Christ's teaching that we should love our enemies as well as our friends, that the divisions that separate people can be broken down, and the enslaving ideology of hard work transformed away from the alienation that partitions workers, employers and their families from the fullness of life which Christ promised. And it is this hope for transformation that sustains our yearning for the renewal of work and life. So it is that we conclude this episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will begin an exploration of Bottomley's conception of how work and life can be renewed through the prophetic imagination, beginning with the need for deep listening to the pain of both the victims and the perpetrators of injustice. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast, or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com That's www.ergasia.podbean.com Or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.